it first, it's a privilege to be here and to be sharing my story a little bit and to share what God's been sharing with me, with you. Um, honestly, my message, and you got to give it up for Lad, Christian, and Dave. I mean, it, seriously. <laughs> like, it looks like it's an easy thing to do is get up here and preach. I was like, I speak all the time. I talk to thousands of people. I, I'm, I'm animated. I can move around. I enjoy that. But preparing a message to share God's word, that was a whole new experience. I mean, it is truly a gift from God to be able to do that. So I've been trying to prepare for the last couple of weeks, and then two days ago, God said, that's it, change everything. And I was like, huh? Change everything. I was like, Lord, but I'm comfortable speaking about this and talking about my family, and, and this is where I'm comfortable at. And God's like, no. No, I want you to change everything. I mean, literally, two days ago, it's like, all right. So I apologize, but... Uh, I did. I typed it word for word because, honestly, God gave me so much information. It was like information overload that I had to, like, all right, Lord, I can't talk 20 points. I mean, God, the people will leave. They won't stay if I do that. So he brought it down to three points. But um, I'm grateful for the opportunity to be able to share my heart here today. And before I get going, the greatest thing about me, me is my family. I mean, I've been blessed to have the family I have. I have... 12, well, we say 13 children, uh, seven of whom are adopted. Uh, we have uh, eight boys, uh, four, five girls, because um, one of our daughters that we call her, our daughter, she's not really officially adopted, but she is in our hearts. So uh, let's go through that a little bit. Let me show you. This is our dog, one of our dogs. He, uh, he's cute there. He's not so cute now. You know, he's a little bit older. He's kind of one of those yippy little dogs. Uh, that's my wife, Rebecca, and that's our other dog, Koa. Koa is a big American Mastiff. He's like 220 pounds. Uh, he's a big, massive dog. Um, next one here, this is our newest addition to our family. His name's Colson. He's three months old. Uh, God brought him into our life. He has a little bit of a heart condition, and uh, God asked us to move forward and uh, bring him into our home. This is Jonah. And before I go any further here, Having such a large family, we've had a hard time to get together and take a photo. You know, a photo that would work, you know, that somebody's, everybody's looking, they're smiling, you know, they're doing what you're supposed to do, you know, they usually got somebody fighting or looking away or making a face, so uh, that's why I apologize for all these individual photos here. But this is Jonah, Jonah's uh, eight. This is Noah, Noah's 12. Christian, he's 12. Sophia, she's eight. My, uh, sorry, Micah. Isaiah. Isaiah's 11. Hopefully he's not here. You didn't hear that. This is Isabel. She's uh, 10. <laughs> this is Mama Mia. As you can tell, she runs our household. She's directing traffic in our house. This is Micah. Micah's 6. And this is Elijah. Elijah's 5. That's my, that's, that's about, that's the head of the household. <laughs> she's, she's, that's Rebecca. She's an amazing woman. I'm grateful to be married to her. And this is my oldest daughter, Olivia. She's 14. And this is my oldest son, Caden, and he's 16. And as you parents, I'm just getting into this teenage thing, and with him starting to drive, Wow. Man, God bless my parents. Seriously, I didn't realize the stress I put them under. But uh, then this is Esther. Esther's, uh, she's part of our family. We call her one of our daughters, but uh, she's not officially adopted. But again, God's brought her into our life, and uh, she's been an amazing addition to our family. 
And I think that's it, hopefully. So um, maybe God's going to bring more. I don't know. But uh, this morning, I just want to share um, why Rebecca and I are involved in orphan care. It's not just adoption, but it's helping all the orphans out in this world. And to be able to do that, I wanted to share a story from the Bible. And it's an abbreviated version, but it is a story from the Bible, so it is going to take a couple of minutes. But uh, hopefully you'll appreciate it and understand uh, why the story is so important to me and Rebecca and why, hopefully... You see why God's called us to do what we do. So our story begins innocently enough with the king of Persia. Xerxes throwing an uh, elaborate banquet for all his nobles and officials. This was a major party. There was food, the drink flowed freely, and there was entertainment. But this was no ordinary Saturday afternoon get-together. Xerxes and his boys, from the least to the greatest, partied hard for a solid week. Now, what I love about the Bible, and if you guys are new here... Um, this is an abbreviated version, but God doesn't really keep anything away. I mean, he lays it all out there in the Bible. I mean, here we are. Here's a king who's in control of all this big uh, Persia, and here he is. I mean, just being forthright. He, this guy's parting hard. I mean, imagine our president doing that, throwing it down with the boys, doing this, that. I mean, having, uh, you know, just a different type of entertainment around. So, by the seventh day, the king and his guests had been drinking heavily. He was, as the scripture says, in high spirits from wine. He was plastered. Um, in his present condition, he wasn't thinking clearly, and he ordered his queen, Vashti, to come out and display herself before the king and, and his guest. Now, you see, he wanted to show her off because she was quite beautiful. So he sent for her, but Vashti, not wanting to be paraded around before a group of men, especially drunken men, she refused. So her refusal really ticked off the king. He decided it was such a serious matter that he would take it up with his advisors. They tell him that Vashti has done wrong, not only to him, and we've got to understand during this time, women are basically possessions. So not only is she uh, disrespecting him, but she's dis- disrespecting all the men within his kingdom. They said to the king, there will be no end of disrespect and disorder. No, I'm sorry, just kidding. <laughs> um, the advisors instruct the king to dispose Queen Vashti and find a new queen, perhaps one who is less opinionated and defiant. So the decree went out that every woman should obey her husband. Let me repeat that. Every woman should obey her, I'm just kidding, her husband, and that every man should be the ruler over his own household. Now, I don't know about you guys, you men. That's not how it runs in our household. I'm sorry. She has me like this. I mean, she tells me jump. I say, how high? You know, she lets me like to think that I, uh, you know, control the household. But after Xerxes gets rid of Vashti, he decides that, you know, it's time for him to find a new queen. So what he does is he creates this uh, search where beautiful, he has beautiful young women come and make their bid for the throne. So the girls would be groomed and pampered for several months. Then each one in turn would spend some time with the king. Then from that experience, he would decide who was going to become the new queen. So now enters Esther. When she was just a little girl, Esther became an orphan when her father and mother died. Mordecai, her cousin, raised Esther from childhood as if she was one of his own. Esther, now a young woman, is selected as one who will be introduced to the king. Her beauty captivated everyone who looked upon her. And wouldn't you know it, when Esther was brought before the king, he finds her more beautiful and desirable than all the women in the land. The king completely is taken with Esther's beauty, and he makes her his queen. Now, the king had a, a good buddy, and his name's Haman. He has a big ego. Haman convinces King Xerxes to make a decree. I mean, this is how big his ego. He makes it, asks the kings to make a decree that whenever Haman is around, 
everyone in his presence should bow down to him. He talked about egocentric. Man, this guy, man, he just, that would be nice to have somebody that powerful to say, yeah, every time I walk in the room, everybody has to bow down. Um, I, <laughs> it's crazy that they have that be that powerful. But Mordecai is a Jew. Mordecai is uh, Esther's uncle, again, who brought her in. And he, he won't bow. He'll only bow to God. So as you might imagine, Haman gets very upset about this. So instead of just blowing off, Haman's like constantly thinking about Mordecai. How dare this guy um, resist the order from the king? So Haman comes with an idea that, no, not only am I going to take care of uh, Mordecai, I'm going to exterminate the whole Jewish population. So Haman tells Xerxes that there are a group of people who do not honor the king's command, specifically the one about bowing to Haman. He says, if it pleases the king, let a decree be issued to destroy them. Xerxes tells Haman, do as he pleases with them. So Xerxes goes, so a decree goes out, excuse me, a decree goes out with the king's seal to destroy, kill, annihilate the Jews. When Mordecai hears the king's order, he tears his clothes and he sits in ashes and weeps for his people. But Mordecai isn't the only one weeping, so are all the Jews. In fact, throughout the province of Persia, when the king's edict is read, every Jew weeps, mourns, and begins to fast. Eventually, word gets back to Esther that Mordecai is sitting outside the king's palace, overwrought with emotion. And Esther, greatly distressed about her, king's, her cousin's sorrow, sends a messenger to find out what's going on. Mordecai returns a copy of the king's decree to Esther and begs her to go before King Xerxes and plead for the mercy of the Jews. Now, during that time, the royal portal calls, no one, and no one, including the queen, came before the king without being invited. So Esther says, Mordecai, I can't do that. I'll lose my life over that if I, if I go before him without being called. So when Esther's words were reported back to Mordecai, he sends his answer. Do not think that because you're in the king's house that you alone will escape when all other Jews are killed. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place, but you and your father's family will perish. For if you... I'm um, sorry. And who knows that you may have come to this time of royal position for such a time as this. So Esther sends a reply back to Mordecai, Go gather all the Jews and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. My maids and I will do the same. When this is done, I will go to the king, even though it is against the law. If I perish, I perish. So during the three days of fasting, Esther devises a plan. She decides to hold a banquet in the king's honor invite Haman, and publicly expose him for who he is. Her plan is to get the king to repeal Haman's order to have the Jews exterminated. Now Haman, completely unaware of Esther's plans, is feeling quite good that he is the only one, besides the king, to be invited to this banquet. But while Haman is kind of strutting around, feeling good about himself, outside in the king's courtyard, he sees Mordecai again. Haman becomes enraged because Mordecai still refuses to bow to him. And he runs home and tells his wife about Mordecai's defiance. So Haman's wife says, well, Mordecai, you got clout. Just build a gallow and execute him. Then go to the banquet happy. But while Haman's strutting around, I'm sorry, liking his wife's advice, Haman builds a gallows upon which he's going to execute Mordecai. Now, the night before the banquet, the king can't sleep. He has a bad case of insomnia. So he calls to have his records read of his time as king. He's pretty sure that this will put him to sleep. 
As it's being read to him, he's reminded how Mordecai saved his life from uh, saved his life by assassination by the palace guards. Earlier, Mordecai overheard a plot by two of the king's guards to assassinate Xerxes. Mordecai told Esther, and Esther goes and tells the king what Mordecai heard. When the king investigates, he finds it to be true, and the two men are executed. So the king decides, you know, I need to do something to honor Mordecai. After all, he did save my life. So the next morning, Haman comes strolling in the king's court, and Xerxes says to him, what should be done for the man the king delights to honor? Well, Haman, his ego's swollen and big. He's thinking that, oh, the king's talking about me. So he says, oh, king, you must throw an elaborate parade with much pomp and circumstance. He says, you need to clothe the man in royal robes. You need to put him up on a beautiful horse and place a crown upon his head. Then you've got to let him be led through the streets of the king, led by a king's noble princes, prince. And as he's being led, dressed so well, riding on that fine stallion, let it be shouted, this is what is done for the man the king delights to honor. So imagine Hammond's chagrin when he finds out. Xerxes says to him, ah, I love it. So why don't you go do that for Mordecai? I mean, in a humorous twist, Hammond ends up being the one who leads Mordecai through the street, shouting, this is what is done for the man the king delights to honor. Afterward, in a rage, he rushes home and he tells his wife and his friends what happened. They say to him almost prophetically, this Mordecai, before whom your downfall has started, is a Jew. You cannot stand against him, for you surely are going to come to ruin. So let's go back to the feast. While at the feast, the king is still feeling quite generous towards Esther. So he says to Esther, my dear, what is your request? I'll give you anything you ask, even up to half of the kingdom. So Esther seizes the moment, and she says, If I have found favor with you, O king, and if it pleases your majesty, grant me this one request. For I and my people have been sold to destruction and slaughter and annihilation. King Xerxes says, Who is he? Where is this man that dared to do such a thing? And Esther replies, The adversary and in me is this vile Haman. So in a rage, the king leaves the room. He's like so furious, he can't believe it. Like, well, this is my best friend. You sure about that? Like, it's, it's him? So as he leaves the room, Hammond realizes what's about to happen. So he approaches Esther on the couch and is begging for his life. And the king comes back in and he sees Hammond on the couch next to the queen, which infuriates him even more. To a point where king says, will he even molest the queen while she is in my house? Now, poor Ham, he's a victim of his own undoing. One of the guards gets words to the king that the, uh, um, a gallows has been built in Hammond's own yard. The king says, take Hammond there. And Hammond is executed on the very gallows that he created for Mordecai. Esther then asks the king to overrule the edict that he initiated by Hammond to destroy all the Jews. The king happily agrees, and a new, a new royal edict is issued that all the Jews in every province throughout the Persia are to be protected and have the rights defended. Esther continues to find favor with the king. Mordecai is elevated to second in command in the kingdom, and all the Jews in every region throughout Persia celebrate. There was feasting and joy and happiness throughout the kingdom. It's a happy ending to a remarkable story that was full of twists and turns and plots and deception. So what are the practical applications that we can take from Esther? Well, I feel like there are at least three things that we can glean from this little book that could help us with our walk with the Lord. 
First, we see that God puts us in the right place at the right time to accomplish his will. It's not coincidental that Mordecai hears the two guards talking about the assassination of the king. And he's able to report that to Esther because without that happening, the future of the Jews might be something different. It's not by happenstance that Esther is promoted to who she is and she becomes queen. And even Mordecai recognizes that when he says, perhaps you have been come to this royal position for such a time as this, meaning to save God's people from destruction. So the same holds true for us. God has us in the right place at the right time to serve him, to bring fulfillment to his will. It's not coincidental that you work where you do. It's not faith that you live in the neighborhood you live in. Your friends, your family, your co-workers, all that is a divine intervention by God. You know, Rebecca and I, uh, back in the day, we were traveling, actually coming back from Hawaii, and we decided to stop over in Salt Lake City because at the time we had a home here and we wanted to stop and visit family or friends. And, you know, nobody really wants to go back to Detroit unless they absolutely have to. So <laughs> uh, we were here and uh, visiting. And Rebecca was working out with one of her friends. Now, Rebecca and I have talked about adoptions. And, again, I say talk about adoptions. Now, guys, you know when you talk about something with your wife, sometimes they interpret that differently. So Rebecca's working out with one of her friends, and her friend tells her the story about this little biracial baby boy who's only a week old that needs a home. So, of course, like any good mother would do, she called me on the way home. Hey, what do you think about adopting right now? Right now? We have three children on the age of four. You want to adopt right now? She goes, yeah, there's this little biracial baby boy, and, you know, I just think maybe we should try to adopt right now. Now, you got to understand, we never looked into adopt. We talked about it, but we never really looked and understood what it was going to be. So for those of you who have adopted, you understand. We, we just thought we'd go down and write a check, and, you know, like babies are us, you should go get a baby and go home. <laughs> you know, we, we didn't quite understand that that's, there's a process to this. So Rebecca comes back, and she has a stack of paperwork. I'm just like, oh, okay, you know what? This is good, because you know what? And I'm sorry, even before we get to this point, my response to her was, let's pray about it. Being the spiritual man that I am, um, I told her, let's pray, and let's see what God has to do. And she's like, that's fine. You pray about it, I'm going to start the paperwork. (laughs) And I'm like, okay, all right. God does places in the right place at the right time. Rebecca goes, proceeds to stay up for over 70 hours to get the paperwork done for Isaiah. She, we have no clue what we're doing. I mean, she's doing her bio. She's doing my bio. She's signing my autograph. I mean, she's doing my everything just to make sure we get this done. And as you who have adopted, you know, you know, you have to go through a home study. You have to do all these things. I mean, God had things so planned that it was amazing. My experience with God, and the reason why I said I wanted to pray about it, is because my experience with God is that he usually doesn't answer prayers right away. You know, usually it's drawn out, takes a long time, and, um, and usually, in my experience, is because I'm not in God's will that that happens. So here we are, we're, you know, I think I'm being a spiritual leader, yeah, let's pray about it, do those things. We found out about Isaiah on a Thursday, or t- Tuesday or Thursday, I'm sorry, too many shots to the head. Um, and by the next week, we had him. Less than a week, God brought Isaiah to our home. 
You talk about being at the right place at the right time. Because you understand, if we would have stopped here in Salt Lake on the way to Hawaii, Isaiah wasn't even born. Her working out with her friend, this conversation would have never happened. But by God's providence, we stopped on the way back home. And Isaiah was a week old. So, so we see that God does put us in the right place at the right time to serve him, and more importantly, to fulfill his will. Our second point, that, us, that like Esther, we too need other believers to support us in our faith journey. You guys remember when Esther was going before the king and she said, hey, <laughs> if I'm going to do this, I need you to gather all the Jews, not just a few. I want you to gather all the Jews and for you guys to pray and fast for me, and we'll do the same. Because she realized the monumental thing she was about to do. The truth is that when we become a Christian, we become a part of the wider community of faith. We become a part of the body of Christ. We need each other. And because of this need for each other, it has been, um, because of this need for each other, it's been said that there is no Christian, Christian that should live in isolation. There should be no Christian who lives in isolation. In other words, we shouldn't live our Christian life or experiences disassociated or isolated from other Christians. God has designed the family, the church, to be the support system as we journey through this thing called life. You know, it wasn't too much longer. And those who adopted, I don't know if you guys experienced this, but within a year we adopted three times. So it wasn't too much longer that all of a sudden here comes our second adoption. This time it was a relative of mine. She was coming from Western Samoa, so it was an international adoption. It wasn't a domestic adoption, which as you know who have adopted, or if you don't know, international adoptions usually take a little bit longer. But Noah came to our house, and he was almost two. And Noah is an amazing young man. I mean, to see where he's at now, God is just blessed. But as you guys know who adopted older children, or maybe are even involved in foster care, you know that sometimes those children come with baggage. Some physical and emotional baggage. And Noah came with some baggage. I mean, here he is, almost two, and his mom's leaving and saying goodbye. No prep. I don't know if he would have even understood at that time. But he did know something was different. And then just going through, trying to bring Noah and make him part of the family, you know. Honestly, Rebecca and I were so naive. We just thought it would be like Isaiah. I mean, we just, hey, it went fast, it went smooth. He's a part of our family. You know, it's just, it's easy. Well, I think it's easy. I'm sure she might say differently. But, uh, you know, it was something that was just working. Then here we are adopting Noah, who has night terrors, who has a detachment disorder now because his mom, he doesn't understand. I mean, we're so naive, we had a pretty large closet. We just took a crib in there, and we stuck him in there first night. We didn't understand what needed to happen to adopt an older child. So that's when we turned to our community, our church. We found the counselors, we found the people that could help us to understand and to walk through this process. But we need a community If we're truly followers of Christ, you need to live in community. That's how God created our community. 
So by living community, we, you have prayer. You have uh, faith support. When you're struggling, you, uh, you're kept accountable to one another and to God. You have encouragement of being together. You have the strength vitality that comes from worshiping to God together. And then you have friendships that are developed and nurtured within our community, within our church. The third and final point is this, is that Esther shows us that God is at work in the heart and lives of individuals, even those who don't know him. So even though Xerxes was a pagan, God was at work in his life. The king could have easily rejected Esther and her and continue to stand firmly in the, and committed to him and suggesting that to have the Jews killed. Although the scripture doesn't tell us explicitly that God was working in the life of Xerxes, there are too many things that happen to discount God's presence in his life. When we look at the story a little bit closer, we, it's revealed that God was involved in the king's life at every point throughout the story. But how can God be at work in the life of those who don't know him? It's called prevenient grace. Prevenient grace is the grace that God extends to people, drawing to himself even before that person comes to know God. God was at work in Xerxes' life. God in his providence softened King Xerxes' heart toward the children of God and spared them. God was at work in your life even before you guys all came to know him. God was drawing you to himself. He is at work in your life right now. God has great plans for you if you're willing to allow him to use you. That means the person that you share Jesus with, either by your words or actions, every day has an opportunity to see Christ. It also means that person that you're sharing Christ with by your life and your words, that person God's already working in their heart. You know, when I was playing in Detroit, you know, most people think NFL players, what do you think of? Uh, womanizer, partier, drunkard maybe. You know, just a hellion. <laughs> right? I mean, most guys, in, in sometimes the stories you hear in the news most of the time are reports of those guys that don't make good choices. Well, I had a teammate at the time who was that, he fitted that model. He was one of those guys that would cause problems, cause whatever he could just to, cause, just to be rambunctious. He thought Christians were weak, that they were foolish, and how could you give your life to a God that you don't see? Tony Simple and I, we used to almost come to blows and practice every day. Because he would spit on you, he would hold you, he'd pinch you, he'd kick you, he would punch you. He would do whatever he could to try to get an edge over you. And this is my teammate. I mean, we're, we're, we're supposed to be working together, practicing, and this is what he's doing day in and day out. Now, you fast forward a few years after we're both out of the, left Detroit, and I think we're out of the league, actually. And all of a sudden, I get an invitation to a wedding. It's his wedding. And I'm like, oh, great. <laughs> I was like, well, you know, honey, we'll just go and we'll enjoy it. And we'll just go say hi real quick and then we'll head out. Because I'm sure it's going to be a wild, wild party. But then I looked and see who's officiating the wedding. And it's our team chaplain, Dave Wilson. 
And just so you know, Dave Wilson will not do a wedding if you're not a believer. So I'm just like, what is going on? So I called Dave and said, Dave, uh, you're doing Simple's wedding. What? He goes, I know, isn't that exciting? He is a follower of Christ. I'm like, Tony? <laughs> Dirty Tony Simple? I mean, the guy who was voted second to one of the other guys, only guy in the Raiders, in the league, as the dirtiest player in the league. That guy is a follower of Christ. The guy who, honestly, God forgive me, I thought would never come to know Christ. But here's a guy now that's completely dedicated in following Christ. He's a guy that's seeking out what God has for him. He started a nonprofit foundation. You guys have heard of, like, Make-A-Wish Foundation? He started a foundation to help terminally ill or children with special needs to take safaris, hunting trips, He pays for it all. He's involved with FCA, which is Fellowship of Christian Athletes on different campuses. He's a coach. He's a mentor. He's involved in his church. He is a follower of Christ. A guy who I thought would never, never step into a church, let alone give his life to Christ. You know what? God is faithful. God can be counted on. He will not leave us or forsake us. God is working through all of us, whether we realize it or not. You know what? That's good news. That's good news for us because, as we've seen in the book of Esther, we know that by God's grace and his providence, we are in the strategic places God wants us to be. We are blessed to be a part of a community of faith where we have one another to draw strength and encouragement from. And we know that God is actively working in the lives of all individuals, even the ones who don't know him yet. The band would come up right now. That'd be great. So the original question, why are Rebecca and I involved with orphan care? Well, we believe and know that God has called us to be a voice for orphans, for those who are lonely, for those who are homeless. We know that God has equipped us to be the parents of multiple children. I don't know when it's going to stop. (laughs) I guess when we run out of room in the house, I don't know. I know that God is calling us to honor and to be a blessing to him by being a part of his will. I know that orphan care is one of our callings. So how about you? Do you realize God has you at the right place at the right time? That you have a family here within K2? A supporting community. And it's not just here in K2, it's a global community Do you realize that God's on the move and he's asking you if you wanted to partner with him? Do you realize that when you step into where God wants you to go, things happen quickly? They happen for a reason. They happen with a purpose. We know that God is working in all of us. We know that God has a calling upon your life right now, and maybe some of you aren't trusting what God's calling you to do. I want you guys to sit back while you're thinking about, am I willing to step out and trust Christ? I want you to sit back and listen to this next song. Listen to the chorus. Read it on the screen. And ask yourself, is this your life? Are you who you want to be?
Is this your life? And are you who you want to be? You know, it's no accident that you're here this morning. God has something for you today. God wants something of you today. You know what he wants? He wants this. He wants your heart. He wants you to join him in this journey called life and to experience something that you haven't ever experienced before. He wants you to get on board and to find out what it means to say yes to God, to say, God, please use me, to God, please let me be a part of your will and help me to see what you can do. When you say yes to Christ, get ready. You're going to go from a little ripple to a tidal wave. 